John chapter 17. John 17, we'll begin reading in verse 13, and we'll go down to verse 16. We're going verse by verse through the Gospel of John, coming very quickly to the end of things. This is an exceptional chapter here dealing with the intercessory prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 17 and verse 13, the Scripture says, I have given them, I'm sorry, verse 13, and now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Our Lord is only hours away from Calvary. When this prayer is finished, He leaves with His disciples and goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas will come with his crowd and they will take Him. He will be judged. And the next morning after that, He will be crucified. So, we are within hours of Calvary when Jesus Christ is praying this prayer. And uh, we have seen already that He is praying, not only setting forth what He has done, before His Father in heaven, seeking to be glorified with His Father again in heaven. But He moves from that aspect of His prayer to praying for His disciples. Praying specifically for the apostles, but generally for those who are true followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins to ask His Father very specific, quest, uh, very specific requests for those who will be the followers, His followers. First, the apostles, and then those that would become His followers through the preaching of the apostles. His first request was that His Father might keep those who were true Christians. And we looked at that word last week. And by using the word keep, as it says there in the previous verse, in, in verse 12, uh, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in Thy name, those that thou, I kept in thy name, those that thou gavest me have I kept, and none of them are lost. And he prays that his Father might keep them. In verse 11, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, he says in verse 11. In asking his Father to keep him, he is asking his Father to keep his eye upon him. Remember last week I said what he's asking for is his Father, keep an eye on those that know me, who know you through me. Keep an eye on them and wherever they are at and under any circumstance they may find themselves. But he was asking for more than it. He asked his father to carefully protect and to faithfully provide for those who were his children. And then the word also means he was asking his father to keep his followers in the same state in which he found them. And we opened that up a little bit last week to say that here are True Christians, they don't understand all that they need to understand. They are fearful. They are struggling with Him leaving. And yet they are genuine. They are true. And what He's asking His Father is keep them as true Christians. Don't look at them as they are weak or frail or struggling. Look at them as they are in reality. True Christians. True followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and keep them as true followers. Preserve them in that state. I believe our Lord is asking with regard to His church. They are gathered together. It's true that these statements can be made in general to all Christians, but specifically He is asking not only that He keep them, preserve them, but in verse 11 He says, that Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. That they may be one as we are. And here I believe he is 
praying for the unity of His people. But in what context? I believe that he, as I said last Lord's Day, He is praying for His church. Some people don't believe that. Some people believe that He is praying in general for all Christians. If that is the case, then our Lord Jesus has not answered, or our Lord Jesus' prayer has not been answered by His Father. And there are some who are genuine Christians who are not in unity. Genuine Christians, I believe them to be genuine Christians. I, I hope them to be genuine Christians, but they could never be in un- unity with me. Uh, my doctrine on believers' baptism sets them in opposition to me. They have a doctrine of infant baptism. I believe in them to be true Christians. But the unity cannot be there. We have different ideas and understanding of baptism. Uh, We couldn't, for instance, labor together in the spread of the gospel because the purpose of that is to establish churches uh, beyond uh, uh, this area. When I worked in Mexico... It wasn't just to evangelize, but it was to establish churches. When I worked in India, it was not just to evangelize, but it was to evangelize with the purpose of establishing a church. If I was to come alongside a brother who is a genuine brother, but Presbyterian, baptized infants, and I'm a Baptist, and I don't baptize infants, I only baptize true believers in Christ. What kind of church are we going to establish? It can't happen, right? You know it can't. There's no unity there. Now, I'm not saying he's not a Christian. He's not saying that I'm not. But when it comes to the gospel and the spread of the gospel, when it comes to the purpose of Christ in dying for sinners and getting that message into the world, there needs to be unity. And that's what our Lord's praying for in verse 11. And so I believe it's focused on that church. Not just the family of God in general. There are Christians out there that we wouldn't dot every I and cross every T with. Yet we believe them to be genuine. So our Lord is praying for unity. They were diverse group. Diversity of thought and feeling. Different backgrounds, different training, different stages of their Christian life. A local church is like that. And yet despite all of that diversity of thought and diversity of training and diversity of upbringing, when they come into the assembly, they can be united in worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, it will not be long. 50 days from the time this prayer was prayed. 51 days probably. The Holy Spirit will come on the day of Pentecost and a great number will be added into the church and it will not be long after that that Gentiles and Jews will be worshiping together in the same assembly. What a diversity of background. Our Lord prayed that His Father might help His followers maintain a biblical unity. A biblical unity in their efforts to carry out the ministry that He was entrusting to them. A biblical unity in their efforts to carry out the gospel that He was trusting, entrusting to them. He was going back to His Father. He had told His disciples already, I'm going back to my Father. The ministry, the gospel that I've taught, that's in your hands now. You're responsible to take it into the world. And now He prays for them. And He's been instructing them. Chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. He's given a lot of instruction. And now He's praying. And one of the things He prayed for was unity. He prayed His Father would help believers understand the unity that He was praying for was that was akin to the Godhead. To be one as we are. One as we are, He says at the end of verse 11. And as I said last Sunday when we met together, what he's talking about is that there's three persons, but there's only one God, right? We understand that. The Bible teaches one God only, but three distinct persons manifest. Each one having their own responsibility. Each one carrying out that responsibility in unity with each other. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all three working together in a divine unity on the basis of love. 
and yet only one God. Now, he's not saying to the Father, I pray that they would be one person. The church cannot be that. But we can function in a unity that is similar to the Godhead. And what I mean by that is we can function in a unity where every person has their own abilities, each person has their own responsibilities, each person has their own uh, ministry, and yet we are unified in one effort in getting the gospel out. And I think that's what he was praying for. There are three things, brethren, that should be on constant display within the Lord's church. These three are absolutely essential for a properly functioning local assembly. The first is a commitment to doctrinal purity. Our Lord Jesus Christ established a church early on in His ministry. He built that church. He left it in place. And on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were added onto it. Our Lord Jesus Christ was the founder of that church. It was His goal, it was His purpose in founding them to establish that church on a doctrinal purity. He would say to them, they were Jews being saved and brought in, He would say to them, you've heard this, but I'm telling you this is what the truth is. This is what you were taught, but this is what is true. This is how the rabbi teaches, but this is what is right. Over and over they would be met with the truth from the Lord Jesus Christ and it was in opposition to their previous religion. And he established that church on a doctrinal pure truth, on a pure truth. Now, they didn't understand everything. We know that. We've already discussed that. I've shown you that in the Scriptures. They didn't understand everything. They would grow in grace and in knowledge in the days that would be before them. But they were founded on a doctrinal foundation. The second thing that is absolutely critical for a functioning assembly is this. There must be a commitment to unity. Biblical unity. We cannot take the gospel out if we don't even understand what it is. If we don't understand a doctrinal foundation for it, we cannot be instruments in the hand of God to carry truth to the nations without that. But neither can we be useful in the hand of God without a heart and mind bound together for a common cause. And churches all over this county are divided up all over the place. And you and I know that. It's been the burden of my heart since coming up into this area to see that. To hear of people who should be laboring together for the cause of Christ and truth divided and arguing over this issue or that. There must be a biblical unity. Not at the forsaking of truth. Remember I set that down as the first criteria. You cannot have a biblical truth without a biblical a biblical church without a biblical foundation. You cannot. Secondly, there must be biblical unity. But thirdly, thirdly, there must be a commitment to biblical joy. Brother Pat, where does that fit? Listen to a few verses. Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. What does that say about the assembly? What does that say? I was glad when they said, let's, let's get together and worship. It, was, it thrilled my heart that it's Sunday and I have a place to go to church. That's what I'm talking about. People see that. I was glad. What about this? Nehemiah 8.10 The joy of the Lord is your strength. Brother Pat, we've just been beaten down. We've been, I mean, everything around us is just, is just against us. We've been beaten down. What the answer, Brother Pat? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Oh, brother. Feel weak? Are you joyful? Or struggling against providence? Psalm 100 
and 19, verse 14. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies. I have been persuaded for most of my ministry as a pastor that these three things are absolutely essential for a church to function properly. We must have a doctrinal foundation. We must have a biblical unity. And there must be joy in the heart of God's people over what God has done. And so, on the heels of praying that they may be one as we are, he prays in verse um, 13, And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in them. And now I'm going to move from praying for unity to praying for joy. He's already mentioned joy in previous chapters. But now he comes back to it. Now, he prays that in their presence that His joy might be in them. Let's break this verse down and I'm going to spend most of my time here. I may not get to verse 14 this morning. And now, he says, I come to thee. There are two ways this might be interpreted. And now I come to thee, that is, I'm leaving this earth And I'm coming to heaven to be with you, my Father. He's already mentioned that before, so that could be what he's talking about here. And this, of course, is true. That's exactly what is happening. This is the process that is taking place right now. It'll only be a few days before that actually comes to pass. It is also consistent with the context of things to interpret it that way. But, I believe... There is a second aspect of what is being said here. And that is this. And now I come to thee. That is, and now I come to thee, Father, in prayer. With some important requests. And now I come to thee and I'm going to ask you something. He's already been asking. The whole of chapter 17 is him setting forth things and he's asking. And I believe he's coming now to a very specific aspect of things. I come to you now. I'm returning to thee in heaven. That is true. But as the only mediator between God and man, as the only high priest appointed to intercede for those that I represent in heaven, because I am the only mediator, because I am the only high priest, I come to thee right now in prayer asking these things for those you have given me. I think that's what he is saying here. Study it for yourself, but I believe that's where we're at. And now, he says, I come to thee. And now as their mediator, and now as their high priest, I come to thee. Notice the next words. This is part of the reason why I'm interpreting it this way. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world. That is, I'm coming to you, and I'm going to be opening my mouth, and I'm going to be speaking about something, but I'm not going to be speaking to you in heaven. I'm speaking... In the world. I am speaking to you because you're in heaven, but I am in the world as I'm speaking these things. These things I speak being in the world. Being present with my followers. It is very critical as we read and understand Psalm, I mean, uh, I, uh, John 17, that all the eleven are with Him. And perhaps others. But at least all the eleven are there. And He has left Bethany and he is on his way to Jerusalem if not already there in this chapter. He has been followed by his disciples. Not just the eleven but others. He has been instructing them along the way in chapter 13, 14, 15 and 16. And now he's praying. There are others around him. And he says 
These things I speak in the world. These things I speak in the world, not only for my followers, but for all who will follow through their ministry. I'm speaking these things not only for them, but for others. These things I speak in the world that is committed in its efforts to overthrow me and my work. He has warned them about the world hating them. He will do so again before the end of this chapter. He has warned them and told them that the world has been in resistance to Him. The Jews first and then Jew and Gentile joined together to crucify the Lord at Calvary. There is this concerted effort of the world to silence His mouth, to put an end to His ministry. He is going to Calvary. He is going back to His Father. He has taken His ministry and entrusted it into the hands of His church. And He prays, now I speak in the world that is in opposition to Me and in the world that is in opposition to those who will follow Me. He is praying in front of those who understand at least in some extent that they are now going to be responsible to carry on His earthly ministry. They understand to some extent that they are going to be responsible to carry His gospel message into the world. They understand to some extent that He is going to the Father and they are going to be left with the Word of God. Now what are they going to do with it? How are they going to act in light of the world that is in opposition to them, in light of the world that hates them, in light of the world that wants to destroy them and destroy that church and destroy His truth? How are they going to act in light of that? They're cast down already. They're already grieved because He's going. He's opening up words uh, in, in chapter 14 was... You, you believe in God, believe also in me. In many, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Don't let your heart be troubled. It's already a group of people whose hearts are troubled, who are cast down by the awareness that Jesus Christ is leaving them. Even though He said, I will send you another comforter. They are also fearful. The Jews have risen up and they have sought to kill the Lord Jesus Christ on many occasions. They have sought to dissuade the disciples from following Him. They are fearful. They also do not fully understand their responsibility. They have been told what it is that they were going to be responsible to do, but they don't understand what that means and will not understand it for some time after the day of Pentecost. They do not fully understand all that they will face as sheep being sent into a world of wolves. They don't understand. They love the Lord. They are His. He is theirs. They know something of the truth of God. But He's leaving. And now they are responsible for the truth being dispersed. They need unity to carry out that ministry. But they need something else. They need joy. They need something more than ordinary joy that the world can provide. They need a joy that comes from the inside out. In their condition right now, He's praying for two things. There's a strife between them as to who would be greatest. He's praying that there might be unity. They are cast down and fearful. I'm praying in this world where you're going to stay that my joy might be in you. That they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Our Lord prayed that all His followers, not just those in His days, but all His followers, might have, listen, a present tense joy that continues. 
Remember, I, I have said to you, study the words of God, and from time to time I'll give you the tense of a word because it's important as to what's being taught here. In English, we don't have a word that corresponds. The meaning is this. I want you, I want you, Father, to give them my joy, the joy that right now, but that it continues for the rest of their life. Something that can be there. Something that will well up inside of them. Something that won't go away when the circumstances changes. Something that won't go away when the enemy is there. Something that remains. Whether it's this much or that much. It's there. That's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm asking for. Our Lord prayed His followers would continue to have His joy truly and fully realized in their life, in every situation, in every circumstance, and in every aspect of their life. That's what He's praying for. And they are young, and they are cast down, and they are fearful, and they don't understand the Word of God in its fullness, and yet that's what He's asking for. And as they grow in grace and in knowledge, as they become more acquainted with the true and living God, as they become more and more bold, it's going to be there. As they fail in their efforts to get the gospel out as they suffer persecution. It's going to be there. Whatever circumstance of life, it's going to be there. It's going to be realized in their life. He had already promised they would give His joy to them. John 15 and verse 11, These things have I spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full, He said. Now He prays for that which He has promised. Now He prays that they may obtain what He has promised to give them. He has promised eternal life to those who repent and believe the Gospel message. And He prays for them that sinners might repent and believe the Gospel message. He has promised it. And He prays. He has promised them that they would know something of the love of God. And He prays that they would experience it. And He bestows it upon them. Now He prays for that promised joy. That which I have promised you will be yours as part of being a follower of the true and living God. I am praying you might experience. He prays that they may obtain it, keep it, experience it. Our Lord does not pray that His followers might be filled with the joys of the world. You do understand, don't you, that there are certain joys in the world? Certain things that the world can give that can bring a temporary joy. It's uh, something that happens in the world. They have a certain moment in time when they have pleasure or joyfulness. Our Lord does not pray for that. He does not pray for that temporary uh, joy that only the world can provide. He prays for something that remains. Now listen, there are some here who may not know Christ. And I, I want you to understand that the world you live in can provide you with some joy. But it cannot provide you with the joy he's talking about. The Bible says of Moses that he forsook the world. He forsook the pleasures of sin. There's a season in which sin can be pleasurable. Hebrews 11.25 Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy what the pleasures of sin. For a season. There is some pleasure. There's some enjoyment in sin. Well, not deny that. Everyone here that is a Christian can look back on when he wasn't a Christian and said, I enjoyed some things. But it didn't last. It didn't last. We thought it would. We thought if we could just have that, it would solve the problem of gnawing on my heart for something joy, something happy, something that would make me glad, but it didn't. It didn't. Religion can do that. Man-made religion. In Daniel chapter 5, verse 4, the Scripture records those who drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. There was praise going on. They were drinking wine out of the cups of Jehovah that was used to in the tabernacle. They were getting drunk, and they were praising God, their God, the God of gold and silver and wood and stone. 
they were rejoicing. But you know what happens? All man-made religion cannot fulfill its promises. Men and women and children who engage in it come away the next day with a hangover. It's happening right here in this county. People going to some churches and they're being pumped up and they're raising their hands and they're shouting hallelujah and, and they're being promised that everything under the sun and they wake up Monday morning and it's not true. And they know it's not true and they got to pump themselves up to try to get to the next Sunday service because they know that it's not true. But to turn it loose, no, 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 no. I got my cup filled with wine. I'm praising my God. Happens with financial gain. Job 31, 25, Job says, if I rejoiced because of my wealth. And then in verse 28 says, this also were an iniquity to be punished. If I rejoiced because of my wealth. The Bible says, nothing wrong with having wealth. In fact, the Bible says, if your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Let them increase. Bless the Lord for it. But don't set your heart on it. Why? Because riches make themselves wings, the Scripture says in Proverbs 23.5, and fly away. I thought being having a little bit more money would make me joyful. But it could. If you don't have any confidence in it. But it will... And it can, and it has, made itself wings and flown away. If you know anything about the history of mankind, you know that there have been times of depression in the whole world where men lost their money. And that their heart was set on that to make them happy. And then it's gone. What are you going to do when you wake up Monday morning and it's gone? Or Wednesday morning or Friday or whenever. What are you going to do? There is something temporary that the world can provide called joy. But that's not what our Lord is talking about. That's not what Christians need. Christians need something more than that temporary joy the world can give. And when He prays for His disciples, He is not praying for that thing that comes one day and is gone the next, but for that which can remain in us abide with us and continue with us throughout the days of our Christian life and be with us in the midst of whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Here's the question. Because you read there that they might be that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Here's the question. How do the scriptures define the joy that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ because that's what He's praying for. Not the world's joy, but my joy. That's what I want them to have. Well, how does the Scripture define the joy that Jesus Christ had while He was on the earth? God and man both at the same time walking on the earth for 33 plus years. And in Him, the God-man, in the Lord Jesus Christ, there was an abiding joy. And now he prays that his disciples will have that which he had during his earthly ministry. What was that? How is it defined in the Scriptures? In Psalm 16, beginning in verse 5 and going down to verse 11, give, we get an insight into it. In Psalm 16 can be applied to Christians. But the interpretation of it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 5-11, through 11, if you want to follow with me as I read over there. Psalm 16.5, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance, and of my cup thou maintainest my lot. Jesus Christ speaking of His Father. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places, yea, I have a goodly heritage. That can refer to Israel's distribution of land, but it taken away from the physical, it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. The lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord 
who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord, that is His Father, always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Pay close attention to the next two verses. Therefore my heart is glad. Whoever is speaking these words is glad because God is with him. And my glory rejoiceth. My flesh shall rest in hope. For, because, thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Who is that speaking of? That's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, my heart is glad. My soul, my glory rejoices in God. What he is speaking of here is the joy that he had with fellowship with his Father. Spurgeon says this concerning that verse, verse 5. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. That statement there in verse 5. Spurgeon says, quote, With what confidence and abounding joy does Jesus turn to Jehovah, whose, whom His soul possessed and delighted in, content beyond measure with the, His portion in the Lord His God. His cup was full. His heart was full too. Even in the sorest sorrows, He still laid hold with both hands upon His Father crying, My God, My God. Do you see what's being said here? That even at the cross, what was inside the heart of Christ regarding fellowship with the Father, he could lay hold and say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was talking about that fellowship being gone. Spurgeon goes on to say, We too can make our boast in the Lord. He is the meat and the drink of our souls. He is our portion, supplying all our necessities, our cup in this life, and our inheritance in the life to come. All as children of the Father, who is in heaven, we inherit, listen carefully, as children of the Father who is in heaven, we inherit by virtue of our joint heirship with Jesus, being joined with Christ, he says, all the riches of the covenant of grace and the portion which falls to us sets upon our table the bread of heaven and the new wine in the kingdom. Spurgeon is saying what Christ had during his earthly ministry in his fellowship with God, knowing that God was His portion. We can have, as we walk through life, knowing God is our portion. God has taken an interest in my soul, and He took an interest in it before the foundation of the world. God sent His Son for my soul, and He died for me at Calvary's cross. He was buried, He rose again. God, the Holy Spirit, took an interest in me and drew me to the Son of God. When God saved me, he came in and I was sealed with the very presence of God. God lives in me. He is my portion. I walk each day with Him. I talk with Him. I, I read about Him in the Scriptures. I learn of Him. I fellowship with Him. I pray to Him. He is my portion. He is my resurrection. He is everything. That's the joy that the child of God needs to nurture. That's the joy that's in us. Where are you at this morning, dear child of God? Struggling? You don't have a job? Struggling? Some family issue? Struggling? God is your portion. Oh, hallelujah. Darkness settling down over your corner of the world? Light's going to spring up. That's the promise of God. God is your portion. Struggling with some doctrine or another? Trying to figure out what the Word of God has to say? God is your portion. The joy that is in you is from Him. Christ had it. Because He knew that on the earth, men would reject Him. Religion would reject Him. 
He would only have a handful of followers at the end of three and a half years of ministry. He would only have one church established after all that energy expanded, all that preaching. God was His portion. And God would take that which He left on the earth and spread it into the whole world. That's the first aspect of the joy that Jesus Christ had on the earth. He lived with the knowledge that God was His and He was God's. They're united as one. We enter into that when God saves us. The joy for which our Lord prays is the joy of knowing the one true and living God. The joy that belongs to Him now becomes ours. It is the joy of knowing that with God, as our Savior, we have all we need in this life and the next. That is an aspect of Christianity that is hard to grasp. It's difficult for some to come to this place with Jesus Christ as my Savior. I have all I need in this life and in the next. Brother Pat, are you saying we don't need a job? No, go to work. Provide for your house. I'm not saying that. But what if that's taken away from you? You still have all you need. You still have a God that promises to take care of you and protect you and provide for you. You still have something. The world can take the things that you have away from you, but it cannot take this. To nurture the attitude that with God I have everything I need. To live in that moment is a difficult place. It is what is truly walking by faith and not by sight. But that's what part of it is. The joy for which our Lord prays is the joy of being accepted in the presence of God. Except at the cross when He who knew no sin became sin for us and God forsook Him for that moment when He cried out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Except for that moment, there was never a moment in our Lord's life where He and the Father were not in fellowship one with another. The way into the Holy of Holies has been made open for us, brethren. And that by the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to stand like Esther outside waiting for the king to raise his scepter and say, you can come in. We go in. Because the way has already been made for us. And when we come, we're accepted in the Beloved. And there is no, you can't come today, I don't have time for you, with God. We are there. He made a way for us. There's never a moment when we're not, we don't have access to the one true and living God. We are no more strangers and foreigners. We are now sons and daughters of the Most High God. We are not far off from God. We are now brought near or to God by the blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. Isn't that what John says? 1 John 1.3 Truly, he says, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's where it's at. Truly, this is where it's at. Our Lord's joy is revealed in His fellowship with His Father. Our Lord's joy is revealed in His delight in doing His Father's will. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9, the Scripture says, Then said He, Lo, I come to do Thy will, O God. I am coming to this world to do God's will. John chapter 4, verse 32, He says, But He said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And then in verse 34, He says, My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me. The word meat there, uh, it's sometimes translated food, but it has this more of this idea of than just food. It's not just a plate of food. My meat, I have meat to eat. I have a portion that satisfies me. 
I have a portion that brings me joy. I have a good portion. A delightful portion before me. What is it? To do the will of God. We had one of we had four children. We had one of them. Every time we sat down to eat, he'd take a bite. Mmm. He'd do mmm. Mmm. He was saying. <laughs> he always knew when he was at the table. And it didn't make any difference what it was. He was enjoying what his mother said before. Christ has come to do the will of the Father. His meat. Mm, I have a good portion here. To do the will of my Father which is in heaven. My meat, my satisfying portion, my good portion, that which delights my soul, is to do the will of my Father which is in heaven. With our Lord's joy being in us, we also begin and continue to learn what it is to do the will of God. When God saved you, you didn't know everything about the will of God. You've been saved some years now. You don't even know now everything about the will of God. But you entered in. There was a beginning. But remember I said this thing about joy is it has a beginning and continues. And so God began something in you. And your joy was to do the will of God. And and you tried to figure out what it was. And somebody said, read the scripture. You said, yes, I want to do that. And somebody said, Christian ought to pray. And you said, yes, I want to do that too. Someone else said, a Christian ought to be in church. You said, yes, I was glad. When they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Things begin to open up. You begin to realize what it was to be a Christian. And something inside of you said, that's good. I want to do it. That's what God puts inside of a Christian. And then, how many years now you've been walking with God? And you say, I know a little bit about the will of God, but there's, there's more. The future holds more. More of God's will is going to be revealed. And as it is, I want it to be my good portion. I want to delight in it, even as my Lord did. We do not do God's will, brethren, out of some sense of obligation, some Pharisee hang, standing there with a baseball bat, boom, you didn't do that right. We don't do God's will on that kind of, 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 of attitude, with that kind of attitude. God's will develops in us. We learn from the Scriptures and it comes out of us. The desire to do it comes from the inside because God is working on the inside. We grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. and We also learn that our satisfying portion in this life, our good portion in this life, our delightful portion in this life is to do what He has said for us to do. His Word is not objectionable to us. If we come to know it and understand it, we want to do it. That's Christianity. We don't mean not do it exactly right the first time, or we may fail in our efforts, but nonetheless, from the inside, we want to do what God says for us to do, if we're Christians. Finally, the Lord's joy was also found in giving the Word of God, giving out the Word of God. In John chapter 17, in verse 6, He says, I manifested Thy name unto the men which Thou gavest Me out of the world. Verse 8, He says, I have given unto them the the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them. I have given them the word. In Proverbs 8 and verse 10, God cries, receive my instruction. Not silver. My knowledge is better than choice gold. And then he's not saying we ought not to have money to take care of our life, but he's saying this is more important. It becomes the focus of the life of a child of God. My instruction. My word. So we begin a life searching the Scriptures. And some of us grow at different rates, but we begin to understand, and then we begin to do. Our Lord found joy in giving His children the Word of God. But also, our Lord found joy in spreading the Gospel message. 
in the salvation of sinners. Do you realize that our Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth because He loves sinners? Do you realize one of the accusations made against the Lord Jesus Christ by man-made religion as he, He ate with sinners? Can you imagine that? He mingled with sinners. That's what Christians do. We're in this world. We're not of it. We don't live like it. We don't find our joy in it, but we are in it. And as we are in it, we are light and we are salt and we are surrounded by sinners. I remember when God saved me and I went to work. <laughs> and the word around work was, well, Pat Horner got religion. That, that, that's what they said. That was, the, that was the statement made. And Pat Horner got religion. That's all they knew. And I just lived before. Looked for opportunity to speak when God gave me opportunity in the middle of that business. And I was surrounded by people that used God's name in vain on a regular basis. I was surrounded by people who lived in sin outside of marriage. I was surrounded by people who were drunk. I was surrounded by people who used drugs. I was surrounded by people of the world. I was in it, but I wasn't of it. I remember one time this guy was... I was in charge of all the cash registers, all these girls. And uh, I began to encourage them to dress better. I had to be real careful, but I had to encourage them to dress better. I walked up one day, and this guy has his arm around this 18-year-old girl, and boom, I blasted him. He's a manager. Don't you treat my girls like that. And he looked at me, and she looked at me, and I said, get your arm off her shoulder. He's a married man. What are you doing? And silence. <laughs> you can imagine, right? Customers standing in line getting ready to check out. This is a retail place. And everybody's looking. And he looks at me and walks off. And she said, thank you. We're in the world, but we don't have to be of it. And his joy was to take the Word of God to sinners. Listen to the Scriptures. Luke 15, verses 4 through 7. Just let me read it to you. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness, and what? Go after that which is lost until he find it. That's our Lord. That's His heart. When he had found it, what does he do? He layeth it up on his shoulder and what's going on in his heart? He layeth it up on his shoulder rejoicing. God is rejoicing. And the Scriptures go on, and when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors. He saith unto them, Rejoice with me. Over what? What are you so happy about? Well, let me tell you, I found my sheep that was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety-nine just persons which need no repentance. Joy in heaven. God breaks out in a hallelujah. Can I put that that way? God breaks out in a hallelujah when sinners are saved. It's not the angels. They're still scratching their heads trying to figure out what God's doing in saving sinners. They don't understand. It's not the angels rejoicing. They don't understand the Gospel. Somebody in heaven is rejoicing over a sinner that needs repentance. God has pulled back a little bit of the veil that separates us from heaven to show us that in the preaching of the gospel and the sinner repenting of their sins, God rejoices. We say, Brother Pat, from the foundation and God's work and the whole thing is God. Yes! And when they repent, He rejoices. 
There are some who no longer need repentance. That's what he says here in this part. But there are others who need to repent. And in this room, there are some who don't need to repent in terms of salvation. You already repented. God has already saved you. But there are some sitting under the sound of my voice that need to repent, need to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to the salvation of your soul. God has said that if you would repent and believe the gospel message, that He would believe you. There are some sitting here this morning that need to repent. They need to understand that only Jesus Christ can save them. They need to understand that sin will destroy their lives. They need to understand that the world they live in is under a curse and they need to come out of that. And they need to come to Christ. And they need to repent and they need to believe the gospel message. They need to believe that He has died at Calvary's cross to die for sinners. They need to believe that He was buried and rose again. They need to believe that He and He alone is the only one who can save them from their sins. And when sinners repent, God rejoices. And when sinners repent, we rejoice. Why? Because His joy is in us. One of the things that grieves me most for all of my Christian life is to meet some Christian who no longer rejoices in the salvation of sinners. They have become so doctrinally solid that they can't smile, that their heart's not warm with the knowledge that God has saved a sinner from their sins. I know men who hear of sinners come to Christ and the first words out of their mouth is to question whether or not they did it right or whether they did anything, whether it was genuinely a work of God. You know, on the day of Pentecost, God saved 3,000 people. What did the church do? Baptize them, add them to the membership. No scratching of the head. I wonder if they got in right. No scratching of the head when they said that right. No scratching of the head. Watch. No. No. They preached that men ought to repent. And when they did, and God saved them, they baptized them. Our Lord delights in the proclamation of the gospel, not only here. And abroad, our Lord delights in it. Because I know the Lord delights in it, I go and I preach. And I have preached in other nations and I've preached in other places. And I love to preach the gospel. <laughs> and I love to teach the Word of God. And part of that is God has put some of that joy of distributing His Word to others in my heart. The joy of Jesus Christ as He walked on this earth preaching the Word of God. That's His joy. Some of that's in me. Is it in you? Is there a delight in your soul to get the Word of God out to others? Do you spend any time at all thinking about what can I do to get the Word of God out in my county? Uh, or is your whole life wrapped up in the house and the car and what? The job. Nothing wrong with those things. But if that's all it is, something of the joy of Christ in us as He delighted in the proclamation of His Word, something of that is in every Christian. So, our joy will be found in teaching the Word of God to others. Our joy will be found in giving the Word of God to others and preaching. Not everyone's called to preach, but everyone is called to use God's Word to help others. Everyone. Is that something that makes you glad? Is there anything of walking in fellowship with God, of, of seeking to know the will of God, of seeking to teach the Word of God to other Christians or seeking to preach the Gospel to sinners? Is there any of that that brings joy to your soul? Because that's what the joy of Christ is. And there's other things. But that's what it is. Look at His life on the earth. Look at it. His ministry for three and a half years. Look at it. Thirty-three, uh, three and a half years. Look at His life. 
Read the Gospels. I've encouraged you to do so over the years. Read to learn of Christ. What do you see? You see a man that's come who just can't wait to get out of this world and back to the Father? Or do you see a man who's come whose delight is to see sinners saved? What do you see? Let's pray together. Father, I, I pray You bless Your Word.